I'd like to invite you to uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 30. In this passage, Jesus has been um, preparing his followers uh, for his death and for his burial, resurrection, and for his ascension, and even for his second coming. He's preparing them for the fact that there's going to be a time in which he's going to go away. And so he has been telling them a series of parables. Uh, Parables are often described as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And so he's been telling these stories to help them make, make the jump, to help them understand some spiritual truth by relating them to some everyday things that they can understand. And so we get this parable in, in uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, which is often referred to as the parable of the talents. Now, um, in the translation that we're going to read today, uh, the talents are actually referred to uh, as bags of silver. Uh, another translation, um, modern translation, refers to them as bags of gold. Uh, That is because the word talent has nothing to do with our modern word talent, which means an ability or a gift. But the word talent uh, was an amount of money. Uh, We've talked about, uh, you've read of a denarius. We talked a while back about a, a parable where workers got a denarius. That was a day's wage. Well, this was a, a talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarius, so that if you had a talent, uh, it was roughly equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. So that is significant to understand whether you translate it as a bag of silver or a bag of gold or a talent. Keep in your mind this was a significant amount of money, 20 years worth of an average person's working life is what was on the line here in this story. So if you're physically able, I'm going to ask if you would stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 25, um, and beginning in verse 14, we read the parable of the talents or the parable of the three servants. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, 
You gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I I knew you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father God, you have gifted, empowered, and entrusted each of your servants with all that is necessary to carry out your commands. Father, I pray that we would realize that. And more than that, that we would know you in your heart so that we might draw closer to you each and every day. And in doing so, we might please you. We might fall deeper in a love relationship with our creator God who loves us and redeems us so deeply. God, may we never, ever forget what an awesome thing you have done for us by sending your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of difficult things that a pastor does in his job. Now, I'm not trying to make out like pastors have a more difficult job than anybody else. Everybody has difficult things in their job. Everybody does. You have, you know, there's, now there's terrible jobs that people hate every part of their job, and they try to move on to a new job as, as soon as they can. But most jobs have good things and bad things and in-between things, and every job has difficult things. And there's, there's parts of, of jobs that are, every job that's difficult, and, and there's, there's certainly difficult um, things in, in being a pastor. One of them, though, that is more difficult than you might, be, than you might imagine 
is getting people to care about theology. Because there is so often the idea, there is so often the expectation of, you know, all that theology stuff that is great for professionals or intellectuals or retired people with time on their hands or, you know, all those sorts of folks. But, I, you know, I just, I just want Jesus. That's all. Just, just give me some Jesus. I don't need all that, all that theology stuff. And, and, and there is this idea out there that, well, I just want to love the Lord, but I don't really want all this theology stuff. And there's this disconnect and there's this idea that, you know, the two really aren't connected and that I can be fine as a Christian um, and I can be yay Jesus, boo theology, because that's kind of boring and that's kind of difficult. That's kind of pointy-headed intellectual. Those are theology people or mean people, and I'm not a mean person. I'm just a yay loving Jesus person. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult task. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories about a children's minister. And by the way, um, children's ministry and children's sermons, those are one of the hardest things to do. You know, pastors, when they preach sermons, we can pretty much predict how people are going to respond. Sometimes there's something out of the ordinary, but you pretty much know what's going to happen. But, you know, you can testify, can't you, Becky? You never know what's going to happen uh, with a children's sermon. And, you know, um, one day I, there was a, a children's minister and she was up and she was teaching. She was asking the children a question and she said, kids, I want you to tell me what is it that's brown and furry and has a long bushy tail and loves acorns and nuts. And the little boy raised his hand really fast and he says, Miss Becky, Miss Becky, Miss Becky. I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> well, that's kind of how it is about theology, you know? It's like we know, we think we know, oh, the important, the real answer is just, just love Jesus and have more fuzzy feelings about him. But the story that we get today teaches us how important theology is. And part of the name, part of the problem is just the name. Theology sounds so imposing. It sounds so weighty. It sounds so academic. But theology is just the study of God. Or if you want to put it in everyday terms, it's how we think about God. And if you put it in that terms, every single person on the planet is a theologian because every single one of us has thoughts about God. Good thoughts, bad thoughts. Some have thoughts that God doesn't exist. Some have thoughts that God's bad. Some have thoughts that God's good. We all have thoughts about God. So we all have theology. It's not a question of whether or not we do theology. It's just how well we do theology. And so this morning, I want us to, to look at this story, and I want us to understand how theology matters. And specifically, from the point of this um, passage and this message, how bad theology matters. That is, how bad theology can really destroy, how bad theology can really mess you up. 
how does bad theology actually matter? Because a lot of people think, well, as long as I love Jesus a whole lot, if I, you know, say amen, read my Bible, raise my hand, go to church, give some money in the plate, my theology really doesn't matter. What I believe doesn't matter as long as I'm just pro-Jesus. But this story teaches us a different truth. Let's recap the story real quick. There's a guy who's obviously fantastically wealthy. He's some kind of businessman. And he's, we don't know how he's made his money, but he's obviously made it not by sitting still, not by sitting on his rear end. He's taken some risk, and he's taken another big risk, and he's going and traveling, doing some international business, going to a far country, the Bible says. He's going to the other end of the empire, the other end of the world, and he sets his servants in charge. And the Bible says he does so according to their abilities. So he's not overwhelming anybody. This guy knows the abilities of his workers, of his different managers. And he, his three top workers, he puts in charge and he says, okay, you, you're going to get five talents or five bags of gold, five bags of silver. You, you're going to get two. You, you're going to get one. And that was the ability level that each of them had. All right? He doesn't tell them how long he's going to be gone. He just says, I'm going to be gone. You do something with. You make this money work. I am entrusting this to you. You better care for it. You better use it like I would use it while I'm away to the best of your ability. And I'm only giving you as much as you can handle. And when I come back, there's going to be a day that we settle up. There's going to be a day that, that we're going to go over the account books together. We're going to sit down and we're going to talk about what happened while I was gone. He goes away. He comes back. Each of the men come in for a meeting. He starts with the guy with, with five. Guy says, hey, master, guess what? You gave me five, I earned another five. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. You've done, you've had a lot of responsibility. You've had a, a lot of, you know, uh, of recognition. You're going to get even more. And I want to celebrate with you. Come on into my, enter into my joy. The next guy comes in. He's the one that had two talents. He comes in, Master, Master, guess what? You gave me two talents. I doubled it. I got two more. The Master uses the exact same words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into the joy of your Master. Or others translate it, come celebrate with me. That is, I'm so excited. So we see here servant number one, servant number two, both of them, they produced different results, but guess what? They both did the best that they could with what they had. With their abilities and with what was given to them, they did what they could for the master. And so it didn't really matter that one produced five and that one produced two. What mattered is that they were faithful servants, and they did what they could, and they were rewarded 
they were rewarded with both praise, they were rewarded with recognition, they were rewarded with just every possible type of reward they could receive. But the third servant comes, and he, said, he starts talking uh, immediately about not so much his performance, but who he thought the master was, and some very unflattering things about the master. Um, master, I know you're a hard man, and, and I, I know you're, you're pinching every penny, and I know you're, you're doing this, and you're, you're, you're trying to get every, every little bit out of everything, and he starts making excuses, and the master calls him out. And not only does he not praise him, he rebukes him severely, and he has him thrown out into outer darkness, which is a saying that, that basically meant you don't get to be part of the party or the celebration. You're not in the place where the, the feast or the celebration is. You're left out in the dark. And then the Bible says, and there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, which was an ancient saying that meant utter sadness. It meant basically you were devastated. Because he realized, man, I blew it completely. We love the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. We love that phrase. We talk about that as Christians. And all of us hope to hear that one day. If we actually accept the fact, some of us don't like to think about the fact that one day we will stand before God, even as Christians. We just like to Think about the fact, oh, I'm a Christian, I go to heaven. But some of us like to avoid that other fact that, oh, by the way, we will stand before God. And even those of us who are Christians and going to heaven, we will talk to him about the work we've done for him on this earth. We, the ones of us that actually realize that and think about that, we hope to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But the reality is, as much as we hope to hear that and want to hear that, the emphasis in this story, if you count the number of verses, even though there was two guys that heard that and one that didn't, the emphasis is on the one that didn't. The point of the story is on the one that didn't. Jesus is making a point. Here's what could have happened. Here's the good thing that can happen. And it happened to two guys in this story. But lots of folks are going to experience what happened to the third guy if they're not careful, because a lot more of the words and the verses in the story are dedicated to this third guy. And that's why we know the biggest point of the story is what we're going to focus on, and that is why bad theology actually matters. Three things I want us to focus on. Why bad theology matters. First of all, bad theology distorts our view of God. Bad theology distorts our view of God. This is where it all starts. And this is, this is everything else flows from this. If you have bad theology, you get a bad viewpoint of God. You look at God in the wrong way. You don't see him as he is. You see him in some other way. Why did the three men act differently? Why did the first two act in one way and the third act in another way? It had all, everything had to do with how they saw their master. The first two men 
apparently viewed their master very positively. Apparently, they had a good relationship with him. Apparently, they thought, wow, I'm on board with what my, the business that my master is about. I'm on board with his vision. I'm on board with his purpose statement of, you know, whatever our CEO, whatever our master, the, the, the mission of this business, I'm all about it. I believe in it. I fully bought into it. And so when he said, I want you to keep on, just like if I was here watching over your shoulder, I want you to operate just the same way, have all the same values, have all the same habits. They're like, absolutely. We're so honored that you entrusted us with this. And when he left, they didn't do any different except for maybe, just maybe, they said, we're going to try a little bit harder because he's not here physically, we're going to try to remember the words he said, and we're going to try to stay true to this vision and this mission that he gave us for this business. And they had this positive viewpoint, and they tried to do everything they could to work the money, to work the resources, to invest, to live, to, to do what the master would have had them to do. And they had a positive viewpoint of their master. But the third guy was completely different. The Bible tells us that, that he says, I, I, I know about you. By the way, the parable never confirms what his thoughts about the master are. The parable never says this information was correct. All it does is records him saying it. But he says... Oh, I know how you are. I know that you're a hard man who harvest where he didn't sow. You reap where you didn't plant. In other words, you're, you're trying to get blood out of a turnip. You're, you're, you're trying to get something where you didn't give. He had this viewpoint of his master as if my master is cruel. My master is shady. My master is not kind. And everything about the master in his mind was tinged with this wrong belief about him. This complete fear that he's a bad guy. And so instead of working, anticipating the day and looking forward to that day when the master would come back, from the very beginning, from the moment that the master left, this servant was a basket case. This servant was living in fear. Oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible. He's going to come back. And what if somehow I screw up? What if somehow I lose this money? He's so mean and he's so hateful and he's such a terrible man. The best thing that I can do is to dig a hole and hide the money. And then when he comes back, at least he can't blame me for losing the money. And he thinks, if I do that, and I tell him, look, you know your reputation. You know how people see you. I mean, at least here's your money back. Then, I mean, I, I've got myself covered, right? Everything between the men's behavior had to do with their vision, their expectation of who their master really was. Now, we don't know how the third guy got his viewpoint. The story doesn't tell us. Did one of the other servants, when he first went to work there, say, hey, watch out for this master. 
He'll stab you in the back. Did one day the master say something as a joke and he took it wrong, the wrong way? Did he overhear something and maybe heard half the story? You know, was there a rumor started? We don't know how he got the wrong idea. We just know that he had the wrong idea. How many people had the wrong idea about God? Because maybe something happened or didn't happen in their life that they thought should have happened. Or maybe someone else told them, you know, God is this way. Maybe someone, maybe a mom or a dad who was supposed to be a good religious person was really harsh and really mean and really not full of grace at all. And they took it on and they had an idea and they said, well, if this is the way God is, he's not really loving and and forgiving. He's really harsh and mean. But wherever those wrong ideas about God come from, ultimately it doesn't matter what they where they came from, ultimately, it just matters that we got the wrong idea. When we get this bad theology, this bad teaching, or this bad way of thinking, it distorts who God is to us. Because you and I do not act based on reality. We act based on what we believe. And so if we believe about a version of God that that is mean or awful or is some kind of messed up view of God, if that's what we think and that's what we believe, that's how we behave. So bad theology distorts our view of God. Number two, bad theology destroys our motivation. Bad theology destroys our motivation. This goes flows really naturally from the first point. Remember back to servant number one and number two? They're on board. They want to serve. They love their master. They're like, they're, they're like anybody who know, you know that loves their job. You know people who love their job? Sometimes they're almost annoying. You know? You're like, golly, why do you got to be so happy about it? I mean, come on. The rest of us are just waiting for the weekend, and you're waiting for Monday morning. What's wrong with you? Why are you so happy about your job? How do you like it so much? Are you weird? Man, you know, people who are really happy about their job because it's fulfilling and and they like the people they work with and they're making a difference. I mean, they are motivated to work. I know it's rare, but these people exist because they're doing something. They're accomplishing something. They believe in what they do. They make a difference where they are. They have good relationships in their work. And what they do is fulfilling. And so they've got motivation. They don't wake up in the morning, oh, (coughs) not again. No, they wake up and they're ready to go. (coughs) They don't need coffee. Coffee needs them. I mean, they're just ready. They just want to go. But on the other hand, when you're there only because you know you got bills to pay, and you're there only because you absolutely have to be, I don't care how, what kind of work ethic you've got and how much duty and responsibility you've been taught, you're not doing your best. You're showing up for a paycheck. You're there, but your heart's not in it. And you're doing a terrible job because you're not motivated. 
You're just there. You're just existing. And we all know folks like that. Most of us have been like that at some point. We didn't want to be, but just that's just something. Maybe it was an evil boss. Maybe there was a coworker that drove us crazy. Maybe we thought that job was beneath us, or who knows why we felt the way we did. But, you know, <clears throat> we probably didn't last long there. We probably got out of there as quick as we could. But if we were stuck in it for a while, it was miserable. And that's how our service to God is. I'm going to tell you there are people today who identify as Christians. And yet, and they believe that they should serve God. That they ought to serve God. Maybe even that they have to serve God. But their motivation to serve God is almost completely gone. It, it's at the very level of you gotta, you oughta, you're going to get prodded, you're going to get zapped if you don't. <clears throat> I mean, it's the lowest level, the most get-by motivation. Maybe they got a family member who's going to bug them if they don't show up or go or give or do. And their Christian life is just kind of pathetic because they're not, their heart isn't in it. And this servant's heart wasn't in it. Really, his motivation was all about fear. This is my job. The economy's bad. I should be lucky that I have this job. And so, you know, I'm going to stick with it. But this is a terrible place to work. And I'm just hoping and praying when the guy gets back, I'll still have a job. That's what he thought. He had a terrible view of his master. And if you have a terrible view of your heavenly master, of your Lord and Savior, then it will destroy your motivation. You might identify as a Christian. You might say, yes, I'm a believer, but you'll never do much for Jesus. You may say, well, I did this and I did this and I did this. Yeah, just like that man or woman showed up to work and they put in the hours and they did the clock. But you know what? They'd have done better for the company to stay at home because they caused more harm than they did good because all they were doing was going through the motions. And there's a lot of Christians out there who are simply going through the motions because they have this messed up view of God that has destroyed any positive motivation. So bad theology destroys our view of God. It, it distorts our view of God. It destroys our um, motivation. And then finally, and most importantly, it wastes God's grace. It wastes God's grace. Again, I want to say, I want to emphasize... Even though this is just a parable, and you got to remember when, the par when there's parables and stories, not every single point in the parable or story always completely correlates to every single thing in real life. Okay, so if there's a story about a king and the king represents God, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing that the king does is always necessarily every single thing that God does, okay? But still having said that, there's nothing in this story that actually says that the master was a mean and harsh guy. Everything in this story only tells us that the master is upset when he's insulted. 
The master, the owner, the CEO, what you want to call him, whatever you want to call him, someone from 2,000 years ago, by the way, before you start judging the terminology and language by, by today's standards, he was kind. First of all, it tells us that he gave them assignments based on their ability. That he knew his employees, he knew his workers well. He knew what they could handle and what they couldn't handle. And that he gave them no more than they could handle. He gave them clear instructions. I want you to take this, I want you to work it. And, and he gave them just what was within their ability to handle. Okay? And those who followed the instructions, he didn't look at them and say, well, there could have been more. This is good. But you know what? I think you could have done a little more. And he didn't look at that second servant and say, uh, you know what? Two is it's great that you made two talents, but servant number one made five. He didn't do that either. He was kind. He was rewarding. He spoke well. I mean, Everything about him says this is the kind of person you want to work with. <clears throat> but where does he, how does he evaluate this third servant? <laughs> Why does he say, you're not going to get to celebrate? You're not part of the party? You, you don't get to be in charge of anything in my house anymore? Why does he say that? He says it to the guy who completely insults Everything that he's ever done for him. The man that he has left with 20 years worth of wages. I, I don't know what the average wage in this country is. But take your annual salary and multiply times 20. If someone handed that to you, would, would you really insult that person? <laughs> would you really start calling them bad names and talking bad about them? If someone entrusted you with the sacred trust, listen, I'm not even going to stick anybody right over your shoulder. I trust you. I believe in you. I know what you can handle. And here it is. I'm going to be gone for a while. Just do your best. Just work at it. That's all I'm asking. Do your best. And when he comes back, instead of even shamefully saying, I'm so sorry, I failed, I didn't do what you asked. The servant starts to blame the master. Instead of owning his own failure, he starts to say, well, you're a big meanie. Everybody knows how mean and how hateful and how bad you are. <clears throat> and all the master does is takes his own words and says, oh, if you knew that I was this kind of guy, who just had to get every penny that I possibly could, you know, you could have at least bothered to walk down to the bank and stick the money in the bank and at least earn a little interest. You could tell this wasn't 2020, right? Back they were, then they were paying a little interest at the bank. He says, at least you could have earned a little interest. And instead, you just dug a hole. All of the grace... All of the trust, all of the, everything he showered him with, all of the gifts, all of the love was thrown back into his face. 
And he actually dared to try to slam the character of God. To try to disgrace the character of his master rather than admitting his own fault, his own laziness, his own wickedness, his own fearfulness. He tried to put it all on the master. Theology does matter. As much as it's nice to say, oh, I'm a believer, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I love Jesus. It is important that we move beyond the elementary truths of the gospel. Yes, we all need to know that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he was put in that tomb, that he arose on the third day, and that he ascended into the Father, and he's sitting at the right hand, and that he's coming again one day. We all need to know those basics. But we need to grow and learn more and more about Jesus Not so that we can become more intelligent and more big-headed and pointy-headed and academic, but so that we can know God and his character more. We want to be better theologians so that we can know God better. We want to get closer to him. We want to understand his heart better. The Apostle uh, John says something about this. Toward the very end of the Bible, in 1 John chapter 4, he talks about that day that we're going to stand before God. And he says it all comes down to how much we really understand the heart of God. In 1 John 4, he says in verse 16, We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. The Bible does tell us in many places that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's absolutely true. That if we don't recognize that there is a God out there who is bigger and greater and holds our lives in our hands, we are absolute fools. The Bible also tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But it's very important to understand what that fear, the biblical fear that we ought to have is. That biblical fear is mostly a respect and a reverence for God. And what John is teaching us here is the more and more that we, that we learn to love God and know about him, that any of that I'm afraid type thing, that fades away as we learn to love God. Our respect and our reverence for God never goes away. But the type of cowering type of fear of God completely goes away as we realize how much God loves us and we just love him. And so just like those first two servants 
who stood in front of their master on the day that he returned and were excited to see him and excited to say, I'm so glad that you're back, master, because I can't wait to tell you about what I've been doing and how your work's been carrying on while you were gone. John says, those of us who have grown closer and closer to Christ in a love relationship on the day that we meet our Lord and Savior again, we will walk into his presence with confidence. Not arrogance because we think we've done something great, but confidence because of our relationship with him. We know that we love him and, and he loves us and we've been walking in that relationship with him and we can't wait to see him again. And it is a confidence that has been built as we've drawn closer to God. We've built that good theology. That is, we have drawn close to God. We now understand the heart of God and what it's all about. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, you call us into a love relationship with you. And Lord, that love relationship, it involves feelings, but God, it involves more than feelings. There is a substance to that relationship. It involves knowing about you. It involves experiencing you. It involves obeying you. It involves praying to you. It involves coming to you for healing. Father, it involves questioning you at times. God, it involves confessing to you. It involves getting to know you in every possible way, drawing closer to you so that we might be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus, day by day by day. God, help us to understand that we need to be serious about growing deep. To not have a shallow bumper sticker slogan type of faith that's rah, rah, Jesus, rah, rah, church, rah, rah, Christianity, but, but yet has no depth. Father, instead help us to have our faith built on a solid foundation and help our faith to be built each and every day as we, as we draw closer to you, as we love you, as we love one another, so that, that when the winds and waves, when the storms of this life come, Father, that we'll be secure. And when that day comes, that we stand in your presence. There'll be no arrogance, but Father, in humility, and in faith, we'll be able to stand before you confidently because we are confident in you and your love for us. And we're excited to share with you and to enter into the next phase of what you have for us. God, may we learn to draw closer to you. May we seek to know you more each and every day. Father, in this time, as we're about to, to sing a song of response, Lord, may we can each consider how 
we can do one thing in our lives to draw closer to you. God, we pray and we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.